I'll invite you to turn with me once again to the book of John. Look at me in John chapter 3 today. And I mentioned a few weeks ago that chapters 2, 3, and 4 all work together. They, they, they synchronize together. And if you had to give those three chapters a theme to sum it up, it would be the old is gone, the new has come. The old is gone, the new has come. The old way of doing things are at an end because they're inadequate. The ritual purification was lacking. The temple in Jerusalem was lacking. And this morning we'll witness a conversation between Jesus and a Pharisee. And in that conversation, Jesus will show this man who by society's standard was the most religious. Jesus will show him that apart from this thing called the new birth, no amount of religious deeds would ever get him one inch closer to the kingdom of God. And though this conversation happened nearly 2,000 years ago, we'll find that the truth in it is just as fresh and relevant for us today as it was then. But first, we need to see how chapter 2 closed out. Jesus had this incredible encounter in the temple where he's, um, he's overturning money tables, he's running livestock out of the temple. And here's what it says first in John 2.23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him. For he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus, when he was still in Jerusalem, apparently was doing some miracles or some signs as John calls them. Remember, John calls them signs because miracles by themselves, in and of themselves, aren't important. They're only important because of what the sign or the miracle points to, the fact that Jesus was no ordinary man. He was actually the Son of God. And it says many believed on him based on those. And belief based on signs isn't the best form of belief, but it is better than no belief at all. But Jesus says he didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man. And that's a fascinating statement. Remember in the account of Jesus turning the water to wine, Jesus distanced himself from his mother and her will for his life. He couldn't allow her will for his life to interfere or alter his path at all. And his focus was solely on the will of God the Father. And here too, Jesus doesn't entrust his path to anyone. He needs no spokesperson. He needs no agent and he knew what was in man. And though these people believed due to the signs that he was doing, he knew that these people's will would probably not be the same as the Father's will. The people, as we see later in the Gospels, they want to take Jesus and make him their king. They want to exalt him as their ruler, hoping that he'll probably overturn the Roman authorities and restore Israel to its former glory. But that wasn't the Father's will. Jesus had his sight permanently set on the cross where his mission led. And that leads us into chapter 3 this morning. And we can assume here in chapter 3 that Jesus is still in Jerusalem um, around the time of the Passover when this takes place. And here's what it says in John 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So right here we have two people in this conversation that could not have been more opposite. On one hand you have Jesus, who was the son of a carpenter, 
likely grew up around the poverty line um, and grew up in complete obscurity. He was a nobody until now. And on the other side, we have a man who is one of the most influential and most powerful and likely wealthiest men in Jerusalem. His name is Nicodemus, and it says he was a Pharisee. He was a part of the religious group that was, had the most power during that time. And it says he was a Pharisee, but John also seems to emphasize he was a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus was somebody of significance, someone important and influential. And he says he comes to Jesus by night. It doesn't exactly tell us why he does that, but people usually did things at night in order not to be seen by others, especially in a time when no electricity, nighttime was really nighttime. And so perhaps Nicodemus didn't want this conversation or this meeting with Jesus to be public knowledge. He refers to Jesus as rabbi, which was a respectful term, essentially meaning teacher. And he says, we know you're someone special. We know you're from God because the things you're doing, a normal person can't do unless they have the power of God with them. So he says, we know you're someone special. And he says, we. So he's likely maybe speaking for a a small contingent of Pharisees or other leaders from, from the Jews that want to know more about this Jesus. They're open to finding out more about him. Who is this Jesus guy? So Nicodemus recognizes that Jesus is someone special, someone most likely sent from God, but he doesn't yet cross that line into discipleship. He doesn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah yet. He's making this statement, and he kind of leaves it hanging there. You know, he just makes this statement and almost with an implied question of, who are you? Or tell, tell me more. He's obviously seeking more information about Jesus. But typical of Jesus, he doesn't really speak on people's terms. He, he, he doesn't exactly play by their rules. And so instead of Jesus continuing Nicodemus's line of thought, he instead states in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So Jesus introduces this phrase, this idea of being born again, this idea of a new birth or a second birth. And it's a concept so foreign to Nicodemus that he can't even comprehend it. But according to Jesus, this new birth thing is the key to seeing or entering the kingdom of heaven. And that's a massive statement. To the Jewish mind, the kingdom of heaven was something at the end of time. It was something in the future that would be gained um, when God wrapped up everything and establishes his kingdom and rule on earth, and the kingdom is consummated. That was the future for all God-fearing Jews. But Jesus says that apart from this new birth, not only can you not enter the kingdom, but you can't even see the kingdom. You can't even understand it. And so this is a big deal, this new birth that he's talking about. And just like Nicodemus desperately needs to understand it, so do we today need to understand it. If this is the key to taking part in the kingdom of God, then we need to know what Jesus is talking about here. 
we need to answer a few questions about the new birth. Particularly, who is it for? What is it and how it's accomplished? Who is it for? What is it and how is it accomplished? Now let's start with the who is it for. Who is this new birth for? Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He says, unless one. Now who does that include? That includes everyone. Unless one, any person, no matter who they are or where they're from, unless they are born again, they cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. That statement probably would have offended Nicodemus. It would have been a little bit of a slap in the face because that includes him. He's included in the one. He is a Pharisee, a leader of the Jews. And if anyone was thought to have a sure and permanent place in the kingdom of God, shouldn't it be a Pharisee, a religious leader? He was part of the religious elite and in charge of governing all of Jewish life. He should have had a sure place in it. He was as religious as they come, not to mention the fact that he was powerful and wealthy. Surely someone that significant, someone that impressive would have a direct line to the kingdom of God. But Jesus says, no, unless you, even you, Nicodemus, are born again, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And we have to understand the weight of these words, because if you don't enter the kingdom of God or heaven, then where do you enter? Biblically, we know there's only two options. There's the kingdom of God, there's heaven, or there's hell. There's either eternity with God in his kingdom, or there's eternity in the place created for unending punishment for sin. And Jesus essentially says, even you, Nicodemus, apart from this new birth, you'll go to hell. And on one hand, that truth is terrifying because it strips us of all our accolades and our accomplishments. It strips us of anything that we thought we could bring to the table and negotiate with God. God, I did all this. Now you give me eternal life. There's no amount of money, success, accomplishments, or awards that we can give in return for our souls. And that can be shocking to us if we've placed our hope in those things. But at the same time, this truth can rush in like a flood of hope and relief, knowing the entrance into the kingdom of heaven isn't based on any of that. It's not affected by our social status or our bank account or our influence. And that's really good news. God shows no partiality. It doesn't make you, those things don't make you one inch closer to God or to his kingdom. And in fact, Jesus warns us many times in his teachings that, that those very things, money and power and influence can often be a hindrance to coming to the kingdom I mean, just think of the people that Jesus associated with the most. He, he befriended those most despised by society. Tax collectors, prostitutes, lepers. God shows no partiality because those things don't matter in eternity. And so it's incredibly relieving to know that you don't have to keep striving and working endlessly to hope to make it to heaven. Any feelings of having to obtain or earn our salvation, those feelings aren't from God. That's a lie from Satan. Because every single person must be born again. And that leads us to the, the natural next question. Well, what is it? What does it do? What is this new birth? We see that it's for everyone, but what is it? And Nicodemus certainly didn't understand. His reaction was, how can a man be born a second time? How can he enter his mother's womb a second time? And obviously Nicodemus, he's one of the most educated men in Jerusalem. Like he knows what Jesus is saying. He's not a dummy. And so he's kind of answering in a very kind of crass, literal way. 
And, and so he's saying, what is this new birth? Maybe he's, he's not really happy with Jesus and what he's saying. And well, first, what is this new birth? Maybe it's easier to think of what is it not? What is this new birth not? It's not a new set of morals or rules. If that was the case, it'd be a piece of cake. Someone like Nicodemus was a pro in following rules. The Pharisees followed hundreds and hundreds of the laws from the Mosaic law and all the traditions. And if it was if the new birth was about just adding a different set of rules or some other rules, then Nicodemus could have knocked that out. But it's not. It's not about doing things. And it's also not about being a more moral person, just being a better person. Trying to be a good person. Because the reality is hell will be filled with good people. Hell will have plenty of good, fine people in it. Because it's not, being, it's not about being a good moral person. Morality doesn't save us. It can't save and the new birth isn't about improving your life. The new birth isn't taking what's already there and just improving it or making it better. Instead, here's what the new birth is. The new birth involves our old self dying, and then we're born again. That's the imagery we see all across the New Testament. Our old self, which was dead in its sin anyway, dies at the point of regeneration, when the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts. There's nothing about that old self that needs to remain then we experience a total transformation, this new birth. And that's why it's not just an improvement. It's not just adding morality or more rules. There needs to be a complete restart. There's nothing old that, that needs to be salvaged. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And, then, and it's this exact experience that we actually portray in baptism. Romans 6, 4 says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In baptism, we recognize the commitment by that person, but what we're really celebrating in baptism is the new birth. The fact that that person was dead, and now they're alive. Our heart of stone has been replaced with a heart of flesh. It's an identity transforma transformation at the very core of who we are. And the new birth does so many things. We could spend hours unpacking it, but, but here's just two things for this morning. It changes the desires of our heart, and it changes how we see reality. It changes the desires of our heart, and it changes how we see reality. It changes the desires of, the heart, of our heart in the sense that now we desire to live for Christ. If you're a born-again Christian, you should have the desire to live a God-honoring life and follow His commands. Now, that certainly doesn't mean we do it perfectly. That certainly doesn't mean we never sin again. Even Paul talked about how himself, he does what he doesn't want to do, and he doesn't do what he wants to do. He, even Paul, struggled with temptation and sin, and that struggled to want a des desire to follow Christ, but also temptation but the desire to live for Christ is there. We want to please the Father. And the Holy Spirit is such a sweet gift, bringing conviction and repentance when we do stray. And then the second thing it does is that the new birth gives us a new way we see reality. It changes how we see the world. It allows us to see actually God at work in us and around us. And understand that this is a supernatural spiritual event. The new birth is supernatural and spiritual it isn't something we can manufacture. It's not something that we can conjure. And that's where the tension lies with those who haven't experienced the new birth. 
You can't understand spiritual realities when you're spiritually dead. After all, Jesus said, unless one is born again, he can't even see the kingdom. He can't even understand it at the heart level. And that's probably, and there's probably many of you in here who have family members or a close friend that knows all about Christianity. Maybe they've grown up in church. Maybe they know just as much about God and the Bible as you do, but they just don't believe. They just don't believe, and and it doesn't make sense until you factor in the new birth. That apart from being born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. You can't even understand one lick of it because the eyes of our heart is blind. And that's because it's so much deeper than merely knowledge. It's not head knowledge. You, You can't go to school and get a degree in the new birth. The change that takes place at the new birth doesn't just take place in the brain. It's not trading out information or trading out an old system for a new system. It's a change at the heart level. And if you're in here this morning and and you've been searching for weeks or months or years for more meaning in your life or more purpose or some deeper connection with God and you just keep running up against a wall, maybe it's not because you're, you're not trying hard enough. Maybe it's because you haven't experienced the new birth And you've been trying to make it happen. You've been trying to force it to happen. But the reality is the new birth isn't something that we can make happen. It's not something that we can force. And that brings me to the last question about the new birth. How does it happen then? How is it accomplished? Jesus says, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, most commentators agree that when he says water, it's just another reference to the Spirit. These aren't two different things. He's not referencing baptism there. Um, because in the Old Testament, water is actually used as an analogy for the Spirit. So someone must be born of the Spirit. That reminds me of what John told us in chapter 1 in the prologue, that all those who believed in Jesus' name were given the right to become children of God, born not of flesh or blood or the will of man, but they were born of God. And in the same way, he says, they have to be born of the Spirit of God. They're born of God, meaning they couldn't inherit it, they couldn't earn it. And the fact is that this whole thing is a birth analogy, is perfectly fitting. It's no accident that Jesus uses this idea of being born. Because when you were born, which every single one of us in here was, did you contribute anything to being born? No, you didn't. If anything, you made it a lot more difficult for your mother. No, the woman who gave birth to you did all the work. They did every single piece of the process, and that's the same with the new birth. You can't earn it. You can't conjure it. You can't manufacture it. You can only receive it. And that's why Jesus adds this comparison to the wind in verse 8. You know, because you can't control the wind. You can feel the wind, you can see its effects, but you can't make the wind do anything. And he says it's the same with the spirit. You can't manipulate the new birth. And that can be a sticking point for many of us, especially in America where we celebrate the self-made man and woman or putting in the hard work and effort to be successful or proud of earning what we have. And it gives us a sense of accomplishment and security and pride. You know, and it's great to have a good work ethic, but if we try to migrate that mindset into Christianity, then we're going to run into some major problems. If you think Christianity is about accomplishing another set of tasks or tackling a different set of rules in order to receive heaven as your reward, then you're going to miss it. You're going to miss the entire point. 
because that's a false hope. That's a false gospel. That's a gospel of work and merit and morality. But the true gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is a gospel of grace and mercy. And that's why in the book of Romans you see Paul hammering this out over and over again that you're saved by grace through faith. You're not saved by anything you do. And that was a problem for both Jews and for Greeks. In the Greek mindset, you just needed to be able to intellectually understand something. You had to intellectually be able to grasp it, to, to achieve it. You just need to dig deeper until you can really understand it correctly. And the emphasis being on man doing something. And then in the Jewish world, there's this automatic tendency to revert back to the law and following rules in order to earn um, heaven or God's favor in return. And again, the emphasis there is on doing something, but that's not how it works. And it's actually really, really good news that that's not how it works. It's, be it's great because the new birth directly confronts our hopelessness and our helplessness. The new birth takes our condemnation head on. Ephesians 2.1 talks about how we're dead in our trespasses and sins that we walked in. Dead. And a dead thing can't do anything. We could do nothing to mend our relationship with God or to clean ourselves up, but that's when Christ stepped in. That's when the light and life of men pierce the darkness of our hearts. And Ephesians 2.8 declares, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You can't earn it. So stop striving so hard to be good enough. Rejoice and rest in the fact that God has made a way, and ultimately that way is Jesus. And also, this means that we don't lose hope. We don't lose hope. If, if salvation, if the new birth belongs to God, then never underestimate the power of the new birth to transform someone's life, to someone's heart. So never stop praying for that sibling or that parent or that child or that best friend that doesn't know Christ and that keeps rejecting the truth of the gospel. Never quit praying or engaging them. Because we can't underestimate the power of the new birth to completely transform someone's heart. And so Jesus, he drops this truth on Nicodemus. Nicodemus is probably wishing he would never have even gotten into this conversation to begin with. But here's how it begins to end in verse 9. It says, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You can imagine Nicodemus struggling to grasp anything that Jesus is saying. He says, how can these things be? This is difficult. Nicodemus thought he knew exactly how to be a good God-fearing Jew, which would result with him entering the kingdom of heaven. But now he's encountered a whole new condition, a completely different condition to entrance into the kingdom of God, and he doesn't get it. And Jesus says, there's so much more I could tell you, heavenly things. But if you can't even understand this, that, that begins here and now in this life, then you can't possibly comprehend other things of the kingdom. And Jesus finishes with this extraordinary reference to the Old Testament. In verse 13, he says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Here Jesus directly connects the new birth with himself as he references this account from the book of Numbers in chapter 21. And in that story, the Israelites, they begin grumbling against God, saying, I wish we would have just stayed in Egypt. And God sends a plague. It says a fiery serpents, and people are being bit by these uh, venomous snakes, and they're dying left and right. And so they repent, and they go to Moses and say, and say plead with God that he'll spare us. And so Moses does that, and, and God tells Moses to make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and lift it up. And if anyone's bit by one of those snakes, all they have to do is look to the serpent on the pole, and they won't die. They'll be saved. And it's kind of a crazy story, but like many stories in the Old Testament, we find that it's also foreshadowing of something else that will happen in this case, the cross. Jesus says, in the same way, the Son of Man, another title for himself, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And he indeed would be lifted up. He was lifted up, nailed to the rugged cross for all to see. And it was a terrible moment of agony and pain and humiliation as the Son of God was murdered on that cross. But in his death and resurrection, he secured our pardon and our freedom. And just as those who were bitten just had to look to the serpent, the bronze serpent, to be saved, those who were dead in their sins now have need to do nothing else except to look to the Son of Man lifted up on the cross and will have eternal life. You see, the secret of the new birth, the way of the new birth, is in looking to our Savior, who is pierced for our transgression and crushed for our iniquities. So Christian, are you thankful today for the new birth? Are you filled with awe and amazement at the fact that God has saved any one of us? May we never lose that gratitude, and may we be a people that continually point others to the only hope that we have in life and death, and that is Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me?